Welcome to the Zanbergen Report, where wealth strategies and pop culture collide, featuring your distinguished host and certified financial planner, Bart Zandbergen. Welcome to our show of dream chasers and wealth makers. We are thrilled to be back in the studio today with a new episode of the Zanbergen Report. I'm proud to bring in the movers, shakers, and difference makers who are passionate about sharing what they have learned and what you need to know today. And I am pleased to have with me today, Ryan Isakanen from First Trust Advisors. Ryan is a CFA, which is a chartered financial analyst and holds his BA and MA from Wheaton College. Uh, Ryan specializes in um, ETFs and ETF strategies. And just for, for just some background for the audience. So I am in the great position with um, what I do to have great partners and first trust advisors who have been around since 1991 are a great resource, both with people like Ryan, research, products, solutions. So I'm, I'm really honored to have you in today, Ryan. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. Well, clearly, we're, uh, this has been quite a year for both the economy and the market and so on. And I really want to get to your area of specialty, which is themes, but you guys do at First Trust do such a great job between uh, Brian Westbury and your team there with market outlook and economy outlook. Can we, can we start with a little bit of your, your position on the economy and the market? Sure, absolutely. Let it so, rip. Uh, <laughs> so we have become um, more and more, I would say, uh, we, we still want to be invested in, in equities and think U.S. equities are the best positioned uh, amongst the, the options around the globe. However, um, some of our forecasts that we had made late last year uh, we have we have become a little bit more cautious, and the reason that we've become more cautious has a lot to do with the fact that uh, the Federal Reserve ha has been behind the curve when it comes to fighting inflation, and we we've had this this major surge of inflation that has been um, unprecedented in the last four decades or so. We haven't we haven't had anything close to this level of inflation um, that we've had over the last year or so. And we were calling for uh, the likelihood of higher inflation early on because we, we saw how much money had entered the system. Um, and as we think about what causes inflation, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of reasons why individual products and services, you have their prices move higher or lower, but that sort of generalized inflation um, we think can be explained by the fact that you've increased the money supply so much. And the Federal Reserve has had a very loose monetary policy that has uh, essentially allowed that, that uh, money supply to grow at a, at a rate that has stoked inflation. And uh, the unfortunate reality is the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates um, to the point where they slow down economic activity and likely uh, cause a recession. Now, that's the sort of bad news. The good news is we don't think a recession is imminent. We think a recession is probably more likely to happen at some point, um, maybe late in 2023 or early 2024. Um, there is a tremendous amount of money sitting in consumer bank accounts um, there is, you know, that, that, that's 
partly the cause of the inflation that we're seeing. Uh, but but we fortunately started at a point where um, you know there, there's not a lot of consumer debt. Um, there, you know, so the, the household balance sheets are in a pretty good situation today. Very low unemployment today. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot that says as you just look at the the economic indicators that we're going to tip into a recession in the near near term. But because inflation is such a problem, and because we think it's going to require the Fed to raise rates to a point that it actually slows down economic growth and eventually causes a recession, um, you know that that's that's the sort of negative part of our outlook. Um, that being said, we think that stocks are still relatively attractively valued. You know, our, our economics team has a model that they've used for many, many years that, that essentially looks at corporate profits and applies the discount rate based on where we think the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield will be. Uh, without getting into the minutiae of that model too much, uh, we're, we still think that the, the market is um, – is likely to move higher between now and the end of the year. Um, our, our team just put out a piece earlier today, and today is uh, June 21st, um, where we, we talked about um, the, the likelihood of hitting new highs in the, in the broader market, so the S&P 500. Uh, it's less likely that we're going to hit new highs um, this year and probably um, not going to hit new highs until maybe after a, a recession. That being said, we're you know 20% plus below those high levels. So we can still have some market recovery between now and the end of the year. Um, but but you know we we all that to say we've become more cautious in our outlook, and we think that uh, investors um, you know there, there's some things that they can do to position portfolios to reflect that and also to perhaps as markets have pulled back, even um, taken, they can take advantage of, of some, some opportunities for longer term um, growth because everything has sort of been pushed down and, and you've seen asset prices, especially uh, in global, global stocks across, across the board have gotten cheaper apart from maybe some energy stocks. So that, that's, I know I've kind of <laughs> uh, given, given a lot of information um, uh, but, but that's our, our sort of macro outlook. Yeah. So I, I actually read, uh, your commentary today. Um, I, I track it every week and, um, have <laughs> noticed as time goes on your trend toward a little bit more cautious, um, position, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I do appreciate those as I think that, that you guys do a good job with that. Um, Couple of things. So inflation is now what, near near nine. I guess it, somewhere close to that, right? Yeah, it depends on which which uh, you know if you're looking at the PCE deflator or the CPI. But yeah, there's there's eight nine percent is is around where we're at um, for the most you know widely followed measures of inflation here in the U.S. and and there's pretty high level of inflation overseas as well. Yeah. Do you think that there's a possibility or probability that inflation decreases by the end of the year? I think there are parts of what has caused some of the inflationary pressure that are likely to subside. I think when we think about, you know, the, the costs associated with shipping and transport, the costs associated with energy and 
um, you know, the, the war over in Ukraine, some of those things are not likely to keep growing at the same rate that they've that they've grown in the last year. So I do think that some of that will likely be um, reduced um, towards the second half of this year um, and into next year as well. You know, some of that it will be dependent on what the events are, um, especially related to the war in, in Ukraine and whether or not that is something that uh, gets resolved um, as we as we head into the second half of the year or at least reaches a point where it's it's um, kind of becomes a long term uh, situation that that is adapted to. Um, and, and, you know, it also has to do with what what happens in, in China with respect to COVID and some of the lockdowns and, you know, figuring out the supply chains, all that to say, we do think that, that those inflationary pressures will lessen, but that doesn't mean we're going to head anywhere close to the 2% um, target that the Fed has repeatedly put out there is, you know, they, they want to get inflation back down to 2%. Um, I, I think it's, you know, and, and views kind of vary, but I, I think our view is that we're somewhere around at least four or five percent, even when those um, those sort of temporary causes of inflation begin to subside, because the real cause of inflation is there's just so much money that's in the system. And the image, you know, our chief economist, Brian Westbury, has got a great uh, image that uh, or a great analogy that he he has spoken about where you think about the amount of money that is in the system, it's, it's something that has to be digested. It's almost like mm -hmm. yeah. a, a python that takes a big bite of, you know, consumes a, a big pig or something like that. Um, and it's just, it's there and it, it has to be digested. And that's the same, the same is true with uh, the amount of money that's in the system. It has to be digested and it's just not going to go away anytime in, in the near term, at least in our view. Yeah, that makes sense. You you reference long-term growth and what can investors do. I, I think the the easier question is a long-term growth or comment. Um, I think it's clear for someone with a long-term time horizon. You know, some of our favorite companies, right? America's favorite companies are what I would call, and maybe you would agree, on sale right now for <laughs> 30, 40 percent off. So sure. it makes sense for the long term. Um what uh, the other side of your comment, what investors can do today, and maybe that goes into your themes. You want to, you want to address that? Well, yeah. So um, I think as you, as you noted, there are companies that are on, on sale. Um, the market doesn't wait for a recession to price in uh, lower prices. And, and we've seen that pretty clearly. Um, and, and everything has moved lower together. So to your point, I think that there are some for, for long-term investors. And then I think investors should have that long-term time horizon. I think when you consider where we'll be five years from now or, or 10 years from now, the pullback that we've seen in the price of some of these stocks is pretty attractive. Um, and, and so we think that you want to make sure that at the at the heart of your portfolio, you have those really, uh, you know, companies that have higher quality attributes that are going to generate earnings, uh, irrespective of the the 
potential for an economic slowdown. And you want to have companies that have really strong balance sheets and aren't over leveraged and are profitable and all those those things that you would classically want to invest in. Um, when it comes to some of the more opportunistic um, allocations, and I'm talking when I say opportunistic, I'm talking about things that are maybe um, longer term secular trends over the next 10 years, I think there are some attractive opportunities there as well that an investor can take a portion of their allocation and recognize that, you know, there may be some volatility in the near term, but that is always the price of performance for higher growth, longer term uh, sort of secular trends, secular themes. And yes, there are, there are a few of those that I think are uh, becoming more and more compelling as we as we kind of go through this this really choppy uh, environment for the stock market. Um, you know, and, and I I can cover some of those. Um, one of one of my favorites, though, and and we can kind of take take uh, idea by idea or or uh, you know thought by thought if you if you'd like. But but one of my favorites right now is actually uh, the biotech industry. And, you know, the biotech industry, I think, is compelling for a few different reasons. Uh, but the most important of those reasons is we're at a point today where there is new innovation that's being created, not because scientists suddenly got smarter or even that, that research got way better, but, but we've got tools now. We've got technology that is enabling really, really complex and difficult problems to get solved as researchers pursue different treatments for just terrible, terrible diseases. And, and what I mean by that is, it, you know, um, you, you think about a, a complex problem and, and all of a sudden you're able to uh, utilize the, the power of machine learning and artificial intelligence to uncover relationships, to analyze massive amounts of data um, that, that you really couldn't do before. You're able to unlock computing power via cloud computing and, and using resources that you're accessing through your broadband technology. Um, you know, you're, you're able to, to take your supercomputing power and, and unleash that to, to analyze data sets. And, um, you know, that is, that is something that I think is already resulting in really amazing innovation, but it's, I think we're at the front edge of that, honestly, as we think about the, uh, the ability for RNA, mRNA technology and um, you know, personalized oncology that, that's really specific to individuals based on their genetic makeup that might work for some people that have a certain genetic marker, but not work for other people that don't have that genetic marker. Um, you know, we think about gene and cell therapy where you're actually uh, able to to take someone's cells out of their body and and reprogram their immune system to fight a specific uh, sort of disease and then grow that and fuse it back into someone's body to enable their own immune system to fight diseases. These are these are things that were um, you know science fiction not too long ago that were at the front edge of creating those sorts of those sorts of treatments. And so as we think about positioning uh, for for growth, um, you know. People don't tend to wait for a better economy to want to treat their diseases. Um, I, I happen to like biotech because it tends to be a little bit less 
um, focused on the condition of the economy. You can have uh, strong results and strong performance irrespective of the economic environment. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think having a little bit less tie into to the economy is is part of why I, I think that's an interesting uh, area to allocate to. Um, but, but then lastly, uh, I think when we consider the valuations of, of companies in that space, um, they've come down pretty dramatically um, over the last six months, but even they, they've trended lower even before that. And so when I look at some of the, the valuation metrics that we consider for uh, an industry like the biotechnology industry, uh, we're at prices that are as cheap as they've been in about a decade. Um, and so, you know, for, for those reasons and some, some other reasons as well, I think that is one really uh, interesting um, long-term secular trend that, that I think makes a lot of sense to, to allocate to as an investor. Of course, you know, making sure the rest of your portfolio is, um, is allocated properly in those really high-quality companies that we discussed before. So just to be clear, this particular space, um, you had referenced the, you know, the recession and we talked about on sale. So are you saying that this space um, may be quote unquote on sale, but not reflective of the you know, up, perhaps upcoming recession or the tough economy? It's, it's on sale for other reasons? I think it is on sale for a number of different reasons, um, but I think it's going to be less the, the results in the near term for the industry overall are less tied to the economic uh, growth environment that we're going to be in. You know, the healthcare sector, broadly speaking, um, has, has often been viewed as a defensive sector because um, it, it doesn't necessarily, it isn't necessarily going to slow down when the economy slows down people aren't going to wait to get their 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 drugs to treat their disease um, because there's a weak economy it's not something that they can push off like they could maybe an investment in you know buying a new computer or something like that you know buying the newest iphone if if all of a sudden you've got less money because you're paying so much in in you know you're you're paying so much at the pump to fill your tank up with gas you know, that, that's going to, there's a relationship there. There's not the same sort of relationship when it comes to healthcare companies in, in general. Um, and, and so I, I think there are a number of reasons why those companies are on sale that are not just because of, um, you know, the, the coming recession that'll come some point in the next couple of years. Um, I, I do think the whole market has been pushed lower. So I, I can't say that there's not a link specifically, um, or, or I should say in general, because there is. When valuations get pushed lower for stocks in general, it's going to have an impact on everything. Sure. Um, and some of that is tied to you know, the bond market and rates heading higher. Um, but, but there are some specific reasons that biotech stocks are cheap. And, and I didn't mention this, but I will. One of those reasons, I think, is there's been an overhang for the healthcare sector um, where investors have been concerned about the potential to have, um, you know, price controls um, that, that are attached to their products. And, and what I mean by that is, if you think about um, both, both Democrat and Republican administrations um, have talked about 
you know, the, the, the really uh, strong populist message that, that we, our, our seniors are paying too much in, in uh, medical costs and, and they want to lower uh, drug prices. And so, you know, the most recent was in the Build Back Better plan that was um, sort of fizzled out in the fall that they were going to um, have caps on Medicare reimbursement rates. And so that would have an impact on what, uh, what pharmaceutical companies and certain biotech companies could charge for their products. Those sorts of, of, of messages, which are still kind of hanging out there now, um, have been a negative for investors in pharmaceutical and biotech stocks. And that's part of the reason that I think they're cheap. Um, and I happen to think there is a catalyst around the corner that could help resolve that. And, and it'll come in one of two ways. One, there could be a slimmed down version of some of the elements of the Build Back Better plan that, that could perhaps address the cost of, of uh, pharmaceuticals and, and biotech uh, medicine. And I think the market just wants that to get out of the way. Uh, once it does, I think that will actually be a positive for the industry. The other possibility, and I think this is perhaps even more likely, is that uh, we head into the fall, and as we approach the election, um, it becomes more difficult to pass any legislation. And I think the most likely outcome uh, of the elections in the fall are divided government. So I, I think there's a really high probability that the Republicans take the House, uh, possibly the Senate. Of course, the Democrats hold the White House. And so when you've got divided government, it becomes less likely that you're going to have meaningful legislation passed. And therefore, um, you know, it becomes less likely that there's going to be any any price caps on uh, on the healthcare sector. And so I think that'll be viewed as a positive for investors that will perhaps even allow some of these stocks to uh, have multiple expansion, meaning that they could grow even faster than their earnings will. Um, okay. So that, that's part of what kept stocks cheap. But I think there's uh, perhaps a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to healthcare stocks yeah. in general. Yeah, that's a great uh... That's a great rundown. Thank you. Um, what's another trend or theme that you like? You know, another one that I think is really interesting and topical is cybersecurity. Um, you know, you think about what's happened this year um, with, you know, the, the conflict over in, in Ukraine. And um, as investors have recognized that, wait a second, um, Russia happens to be the the largest perpetrator and supporter of cybercrime around the globe. And, you know, that there's concerns that, well, if certain countries, uh, the U.S., or Europe, other, other places, uh, support the resistance to that invasion, well, maybe Russia will launch cyber attacks on, on certain uh, government entities or private sector entities. And so that's been sort of a reminder for companies that they need to make sure their digital infrastructure, their digital ecosystem is secure. And as we listen to some of the, the earnings calls for companies in the cybersecurity space, um, you know, especially since, you know, the invasion started in February, uh, I think it's, it's becoming more clear that their business is actually um, seeing an uptick as, as, as customers, as, as, as people who spend on cybersecurity recognize that they need to make sure that, you know, they're doing everything they can to protect themselves. Um, and, and so that's sort of a, a near-term reason why we've seen this sort of event-fueled 
um, benefit to to cybersecurity. But but here's the other interesting thing, in my opinion, when we think about cybersecurity, is this this part of technology that is necessary as the world becomes more digital. Every industry in, in, that I can think of has become more digitally interconnected. Um, and you know, as we head into a slower economic growth environment or perhaps a recession, um, I, I just think companies are going to reconsider how they're spending their technology dollars as they as they kind of budget for the future. You're going to have management teams sitting around the table saying, "Okay, where can we cut costs? Do we need to reevaluate the size of our labor force? Do we need to maybe?" Uh, reevaluate our ad spending because it's not giving us the bang for the buck that we that we need. You know, maybe we should push off buying new new computers or laptops or iPhones for our, our employees. All of those things I think are likely on the table. What I think is not on the table uh, as those management teams huddle and try to think about reducing costs is cutting their cybersecurity spend. I, I can't imagine, especially in today's environment, but even longer term. Um, as those management teams think about where they may reduce spending, that cybersecurity would be in that conversation. And so I think it's become this sort of almost non-discretionary line item in the budgets of, of companies and as well as government agencies uh, where you have to spend and you have to not just spend, but even increase your spend. Uh, because the reality is the, the cyber criminals have uh, a very strong growth incentive, and they're not likely to, to sort of uh, reduce their their efforts. They're going to continue to expand their efforts because they are located in, in places where you're not going to have uh, you're not going to have law enforcement encouraging you to to slow things down. They're not going to be prosecuted. They're they're going to be uh, in many cases even supported, and so. You know, as you do that cost-benefit analysis and try to figure out, um, is this a worthwhile spend? I think it's a pretty clear, uh, pretty clear case to be made for cybersecurity. So when we look at investments, uh, I think those companies that are in, involved in that cybersecurity theme are are going to benefit um, in ways that other sort of traditional technology companies may not. And uh, so I, I think you're going to have some revenue stability in, in that particular uh, segment of the technology area. So I, I think there's some attractive opportunities as many of those stocks have gotten cheaper this year as well. That makes a lot of sense. And when you all invest in cybersecurity, is it, is it just the developers or is there some tangential related companies that would fall in that category? Yeah. So um, we have an ETF um, where we own um, a few dozen companies involved in cybersecurity, and we try to provide a, a balanced exposure um, to those companies that are involved in, in various aspects of that, um, you know, of cybersecurity. Whether you're companies that are verifying someone's someone's uh, digital identification, whether you're securing their website, whether you're securing, uh, you know, their the ability to to spend um, through e-commerce. Um, whether it's uh, someone's cloud ecosystem. So uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about um, the, the cybersecurity space is, uh, you know, there are companies that have different specialties and they're, they're constantly expanding. And, and um, we're at a point today where I think we're at the early edge of, of their growth. But 
we're also at a point where we don't necessarily know who the eventual winners and losers will be. Um, there are some companies that will be, you know, that'll be acquired. There's some companies that'll uh, lose market share, some that it will gain market share. Um, but just like any, any early stage technology, you may think, you know, but, <laughs> but you find out, you know, five, 10 years later that, that you, you bet on the wrong horse. Yeah. And so I think that, that it makes sense to have sort of a more diversified approach when you're dealing with something like that. And so that's, that's why we have a, an ETF that invests uh, across that sort of uh, cybersecurity ecosystem. Sure. Um, Ryan, I know that you're on a tight schedule today. Do you have, do you have time for like a quick one last um, trend or, or are you done? Sure. Yeah, no, I have, I have, uh, I have got more, uh, more time, and I've got one more idea that I wanted to share with you as well. Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of discussion in the last few years about the energy transition, um, and I think that is, you know, that is something that has, we, we've come to an interesting point in that discussion, um, especially with some of the geopolitical events that have gone on. Um, recently, you know, with, with the war in, in Ukraine and, and uh, Europe's dependence on Russia for natural gas, because they need to generate electricity. And, um, you know, we've come to a point where it's really been a test for how committed, especially Europe, is going to be to that energy transition. Um, and I think there's some interesting things happening that are, that are uh, really un- unexpected when you think about even just six months ago. Uh, one, one recent development is the fact that, um, you know, you're likely to see um, more, more electricity generated from coal-fired plants, which, which is not the direction that Europe wants to go. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense. But they're in a situation where they've been so dependent on natural gas. And as Russia, um, you know, and, and, and Europe sort of break this relationship, um, they're, they're going to need to replace a lot of natural gas imports into Russia, um, or excuse me, from Russia into, into Europe. And so they've got to figure out how to replace that. And in the near term, they are going to increase burning coal and, and you know, keep keeping nuclear on, on track for a while. And I think that has, so we're at a moment in time where maybe Europe is, um, is incentivized to reevaluate their strategy. But here's the interesting interesting part of that conversation. Um, the, the European Commission um, just announced at the end of last month that they were actually going to change um, the amount of electricity generated by renewables. Their target was, was 40% by 2030 um, at the end of last year. And they did reevaluate it, but they, they, went in the, they went in the direction of trying to increase that amount. They didn't say, well, we're going to just give up on this plan. We're actually they say going to have a, a 45% target by 2030. Uh, they propose to increase their spending over the next five years by about 210 billion euros uh, on, on wind, solar, and infrastructure. So, um, you know, I think all these trends uh, or all, all, these, uh, all these geopolitical events um, have maybe counterintuitively will end up reinforcing their belief that they need to transition to renewables. Um, and, and there's other, you know, high priced natural gas, I think is also an incentive to, to deploy wind and solar resources. 
Um, you know, you think about electric vehicles. Well, um, you've got now six, five, six, seven dollar a gallon gasoline for for a little while, uh, at least the next couple of years, I think. Um, you know, maybe some of that will come down if there's a steeper recession than we expect, but that's incentivizing people um, to, to keep spending on those electric vehicles. Um, so here's the interesting uh, part is, as we think about, well, this trend is in place. I think the trend is going to stay in place. How do you invest? One of, one of the ways that we have, uh, we have suggested makes sense to invest is actually the underlying infrastructure for those that will support those renewable assets. So wind and solar electric vehicles, they don't play well with the existing power grid. Um, and you know we, we've seen disruptions uh, around the country and around the world because of that. And the estimates are that over the next three decades, there's going to need, need to be something like 14 trillion with a T uh, spent, $14 trillion spent on the power grid, making it more digital, making it more distributed, and making it more resilient. Um, I happen to think as we consider that transition to renewables, the, the companies that benefit from that infrastructure, that build it out, that, that have the underlying components, the value chain, the, you know, the construction companies, uh, the companies that are, that are transforming the power grid from analog to digital, um, I, I think those companies are a really interesting and attractive opportunity because without those updates to the power grid and those, those enhancements, none of the other transition can take place. None of that transition to wind and solar and electric vehicles can take place. So all that to say, that would be the third, the third theme for people looking at long-term secular growth opportunities. Um, I, I think that is one area that's very attractive that, that is also on sale in comparison to where it was just six months ago. We've got an ETF for that as well um, that, that allows investors with, with sort of one investment to, to gain exposure to companies that are, are those that we believe will benefit from that trend. That's great. And that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to switch gears if you don't mind, and this will probably our, be our closing um, um, idea or comment. So there, many people talk about the stock market as being a leading indicator. I don't know if, if the general public knows what that means, but I know there's a fear of an upcoming recession, regardless of how, how deep it gets. But um, can you talk to the fact that the stock market may sometimes, as a leading indicator, be, um, have a good time during this session, or at least the end of it, as it, as it leads the economy out? Yeah, that's that's a really great point. Um, and the the stock market isn't going to uh, reflect what's going on today. It's going to reflect on it's going to reflect what the overall market participants believe are coming down the road. You know, six months or, or more down the road. And so, you know, the, the the pullback that we've seen in stocks reflects. The, you know, the, the belief that at least earnings are, are probably, uh, you know, likely to, to grow at a slower pace or, or maybe even uh, to, to start shrinking, um, you know, interest rates are heading higher. So you, you have um, lower valuations for stocks as, um, as you know, they, as, as rates head higher. Um, but, but to your point, as we get into a recession and as uh, things 
seem, you know, like they're, the outlook isn't, isn't good and those valuations are already reflected in the stocks, we usually see uh, the best buying opportunities um, before the recession ends. So, you know, six months before the recession ends are usually a really good, uh, a, a really good buying opportunity. Uh, but, but another part of that is it's really, really difficult to time yeah. when a recession ends and when a recession ends. And so, um, you know, it's, it's really tough to develop, say, a trading strategy. So you just you, you can sit out at the, at the, the bad months and, and get back in at, with perfect timing. So, um, you know, for, for long term investors, I, I always recommend not trying to time your, your investments and in, in positioning portfolios. Um, to, to benefit from the environment that you think we're going to be in. But, you know, a lot of investors have this view that they can just sell their whole equity portfolio and get out of stocks, and then they'll have the right time to, to buy back in. And that's just not the case. And that's been proven, proven time and time again, that uh, the best time to buy usually feels the worst. And so most people aren't, uh, aren't able to do that. And so, you know, timing the market is usually a fool's errand. Yeah. Very wise words. And I was, <laughs> you actually may have already answered my next question, but I'll ask it anyway, because maybe you do have a different uh, answer. Um, and as we close up, um, I was going to ask for, you know, kind of closing comments and or your, your ultimate lesson learned in your career as a, your long career as a CFA. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think as I reflect back in the, the various bear markets that I've been through in my career, you know, the, Early on in my career was the dot-com bubble bursting <laughs> and all of the fallout of that. And then, of course, I had the, the 2008 and 2009 uh, really sharp correction in the market or, or uh, you know, pullback. Uh, you know, 2015, there was a pretty, pretty nice pullback. 2018, there was a nice pullback. Of course, no one had experienced this unprecedented pullback in the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And then, you know, here we are today. As I think about all those environments, they're all different from one another. They all have, you know, different causes and, and characteristics. But when I think about the times that I've really wanted to head for the hills or that I get calls the most from investors and clients that, you know, should, should we sell, that tends to be the best time to buy. And the opposite has also been true. When everyone's feeling good and they're they have this fear of missing out, and they wanna they wanna maybe you know double down on all their all their positions, uh, all their gains. That tends to be a good time to to actually sell. And so, um, you know, I think the fact that our emotions work against us um, is is something that causes me even as an analyst to want to work with some investment professionals that isn't that, that isn't uh, as emotionally connected to, to my money as I am. That's and so right. that, that's, that's my main takeaway. We're emotionally connected. It makes a lot of sense to, uh, to utilize an investment professional to, to help achieve your goals, whether you're a professional like me or whether you're uh, just someone else who's investing their own assets. Yeah. Ryan, we covered a lot and, and I really, really appreciate your time, your knowledge, your expertise. And so I want to thank you again for being on the show. It was my pleasure. I had a great time and I hope, uh, hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you. You as well. And I want to thank all the listeners who have tuned in. 
this was a lot of information. If there are questions, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to go in in further detail. Uh, but for now, have a great one and cheers. Tune in next week for the latest edition of the Zanbergen Report, Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Catch up on our recent shows by visiting podcast.bartzanbergen.com. The Zanbergen Report is also available on iTunes, iHeartRadio and Spotify. Interested in being a featured guest on our show or have a question you'd like to hear us answer? Email podcast at bartzanbergen.com. The contents of this podcast episode do not constitute an offer of securities or a solicitation of an offer to buy securities and may not be relied upon in making an investment decision related to any investment offering Access Wealth Management LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Access does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. Opinions are our current opinions and are subject to change without notice. Prices, quotes, rates are subject to change without notice. Generally, investments are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed and may lose value.